Okay, fellow students, if you would turn to Revelation 9, uh, two, three weeks ago we finished the first half. We're going to finish Revelation 9 this week. Remember the central theme of the book of Revelation is, to quote a moniker from a film, it's the return of the king. That's what the book is about. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, is coming back to repossess his planet and his people and establish his kingdom on earth. Now, the first time Jesus came, he didn't come as a king. He came as a suffering servant for the purpose of sacrificing his life for the benefit of humanity, redeem us from our sin. The second time he comes, he's not coming as a suffering servant. He's coming back as a conquering king. He's coming back as the lion and the lamb. He is coming back not to take sides. When Jesus comes back, he never comes back to take sides. When Jesus comes into your life, he never comes to take sides. Anytime Jesus enters any situation, he comes to take over. Right? Because he's the king, and that means you and I are subjects. Correct? We don't live in a democracy. We live in a theocracy, and his name is Theo. That's the name of the beast, right? We, we live in a monarchy. That's the nature of the universe. A central part of the coming king's agenda is the eradication of evil on planet Earth, and we're going to be going through that. We have been going through that. The book of Revelation really consists of three sets of seven judgment seats. We've been through the first set already, the seven seal judgments. Today we're going to finish the sixth trumpet judgment. That's the second set. Seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments. And here in the next three or four months, we're going to get into the seven bowl judgments, the final three. So God is eradicating evil on planet Earth prior to his taking possession of it, and he's using three sets of seven judgments each. So today, we're going to finish the uh, second set of God's judgments, the trumpet judgments. Remember, last time we were here, three or four weeks ago, we talked about the first four trumpet judgments, and they were designed to impact planet Earth. We talked about the fact that God impacted the land, the salt water, the fresh water, and the heavenly body. So those first four judgments were designed to degrade and partially destroy planet Earth's capacity to support human life. Then the week after that, we talked about God ratcheting the judgment up a bit and allowing demons to come in the form of locusts and torment men for five months and they couldn't die. So God was saying, if you choose hell, I'm going to give you five months of a taste of it, an appetizer of it, to see if it's something you really want to do for all eternity. So in mercy, I'm going to prevent you from dying and I'm going to torment you for five months with demons so that you will really get an appetizer of hell and decide whether this is something you want to do. Now that's mercy. That's great mercy. Anytime God deals with you and I in time, he's showing us mercy. Because there's opportunity to repent, right? So you have choice still at that point. When he deals with us in eternity, the time for repentance is over. So the last trumpet judgments, now these last two, are designed to touch people, not just touch the planet. Last week we talked about the torment by demons, and now we're going to talk about death death on a rather vast scale, and you're going to see that this is both judgment of sin and the mercy of God at the same time. Here's the key idea. When you reject God, you embrace Satan and vice versa. There is no neutral and everyone will choose, period. Life, in fact, is binary. There is no neutral. You can't say, I have made my mind up. To not decide is to decide. You've already decided. Right? You will serve somebody, to quote Bob Dylan. You will either be serving Jesus Christ or you will be serving Satan. No in-between. Let's talk about this. Verse 13. And the sixth angel, right? This is the sixth angel sounded. This is the trumpet judgments. And I heard a voice from the four corners of the golden altar, which is before God. And it says, a voice. In the Greek, it means singular, solitary, a solo voice. And the location of the voice is the golden altar before God. Now, John didn't see anyone. He heard a voice, a solitary voice giving a command, and it was by the golden altar. Now, remember, in the Jewish temple, there were two altars. There was an altar of sacrifice, and there was an altar of incense. The golden altar that John sees here is the original. The one that Moses used in the temple, that was the copy. And it was 36 inches high, 18 inches by 18 inches. It was covered with pure gold. And the purpose of that altar was to burn incense. 
So the priest would take the sacrifice, put it on the brazen altar, the big bronze altar outside. They'd offer the sacrifice. There was hot coals. The priest would take some of those hot coals, bring them over to this little 18 by 18 altar of incense, and he would have a fire pan, and he would burn incense, and the smoke of the incense would go up to God. At the same time, God's people were outside praying. So anytime in Bible you see incense, rising incense, it's a picture of the prayers of God's people. Those are the same thing in Scripture when you see that at that point. So this altar is an altar of mercy. This altar represents an altar of intercession because the priest would offer the incense and the people would be praying outside at the same time. Now this altar of mercy is not going to be an altar of intercession, it's going to be an altar of judgment. So we see a shift in God's attitude towards sin. God is merciful and slow to anger. God is abounding in love and compassion. But in Genesis 6, just before the flood, what did God say? My spirit will not strive with mankind forever. There's going to come a day when the opportunity for repentance is done. It's over. Opportunity is closed. The door is shut for the entire planet. That time is coming. There's a time for mercy and there's a time for judgment. In Revelation 6, the martyrs underneath the altar are crying out for God's justice to prevail and God is now going to answer those prayers. Remember in Revelation or Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 31, if you want a verse that'll make you wet your pants, Hebrews 10, 31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The world has a view of Jesus being either an infant in the cradle or a dead savior on the cross. Revelation dispels that notion. He is very much alive. He is coming back. He is a conquering king. And when he comes back, he's going to put an end to evil. All the garbage you see on planet Earth today, the day is coming when it will be eradicated. And you're going to start to see this right here. Those living on planet Earth at this time are now going to experience the terrifying nature of falling into the hands of the living God. Verse 14. One, God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. One saying, it seems that that is one voice, either God the Father or the Lamb. He says, release the angels. Now, it's very interesting. These angels are almost certainly either fallen angels or demons. They're the same thing. Fallen angel is a demon. They're identical. Because holy angels would never be bound. Right? A holy angel is what? An obedient angel. An angel that hasn't fallen always obeys God. Why would you bind and restrict a holy angel who's being obedient? So if angels are bound, they're imprisoned, and obviously they're fallen angels or demons at that point. So the authority to release these demons has to come from God himself, but the actual job of releasing them is done by one angel, the sixth angel, which we talked about at that point. So this binding and loosing of these angels is obviously supernatural and maybe the same kind of binding and loosing that Satan's going to experience. Remember, at the beginning of the millennium, Satan's going to be bound. It's interesting, it says, one angel came down from heaven with a great chain, bound Satan, Lucifer, threw him in the abyss for how long? Thousand years until the end of the millennium and then released him for a short period of time. So there's binding and loosing, apparently that same kind of a thing here. Now it says, release what? What's it say? You can talk to me. What comes before four? The. It's a definite article. Release the four angels. Apparently these are a designated group of angels. You know when you read the Bible, one thing that's really important, every word matters. Every word matters. Every yacht and every tittle, every period, every comma, it matters. So release the four angels. These are a designated group, apparently a very powerful, and especially evil angels that have been bound sometime in the past. It's intriguing that Daniel 10 references the fact that apparently demons are assigned to various world empires. Remember, Gabriel comes to Daniel in Daniel 10 to show him what the vision means, and, and Gabriel says, I've been attempting to come to you for 21 days, but I've been in the spiritual battle, and I've been rehindered from coming to you. After he tells him the vision, he says, I'm going to go and fight with the prince of Persia. And after that, the prince of Greece is coming, who I've got to do battle with as well. 
So apparently there's ongoing spiritual warfare in heavenly places. This is not the only time we see this. Ephesians 6 tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Those are names of angels, ranks of angels in heavenly places. So we do have spiritual warfare. Interesting that Daniel talks about four world empires, right? Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. He talks about four coming world empires, and it's, he tells us that apparently each one of these empires has a demonic angel in charge of influencing that empire. To the dark side, obvious. I don't know this very provocative. I think it probably has some basis in truth, but it's, I think Satan is a master strategist. I would be utterly amazed if he didn't have fallen angels in every world capital. In every movie theater production floor that stuff comes out of Hollywood. Why would he not seek to influence the culture through human organs? Why would he not use demonic influence to influence human beings to propagate lies and deception and murders? Because he's a liar and a deceiver and a murderer, right? We would be amazed if he wouldn't use that basic strategy. So we are somewhat persuaded that the prince of Persia is a demon that was assigned by Satan to do spiritual warfare and influence the kingdom of Persia and the kingdom of Greece and the empire of the United States. None of that should surprise us. We do know that angelic power is supernatural. Remember, one night after dinner, it only took one angel to kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers when Hezekiah was being surrounded and Jerusalem was being surrounded. So these four fallen angels are probably four demonic commanders of the coming invasion of planet Earth. Now, it doesn't say they're incarcerated in the abyss. It says they are bound at the great river Euphrates. Interesting. Literally, it means having been bound and currently bound. So they've been bound for some time in the past. Rob's going to show you a picture of the Euphrates River. It was one of the four rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. It was located as a location where Satan deceived Adam and Eve. It's the location of the first lie, the first murder, the first grave. It's the place where Israel spent 70 years in captivity. And I want you to notice it's 1,780 miles long. It starts in the Armenian highlands and it flows for 1,780 miles all the way down to the Persian Gulf. It's an extremely important river. It is the historic boundary marker between the Near East and the Far East. The Near East is the Mediterranean side. If you keep going east of that river, you're going to run into China. So it's the Near East and the Far East. It's the division boundary. The Euphrates River was the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire didn't go beyond that river. Beyond that river were the Parthians. They had the meanest, baddest cavalry in the ancient world, and the Roman legions could never conquer the Parthians. So beyond that was the Parthian Empire, and Rome stopped right there. The Euphrates River was also the easternmost boundary of the nation of Israel. Remember when God made the promise to Abraham? Genesis 12. He said, here's your boundary conditions. Here's going to be Israel's boundary. When Jesus Christ comes back, Israel's boundary is going to run all the way to the Euphrates River at that point. More importantly, the city of Babylon was located on the banks of the Euphrates River in contemporary Iraq. Now, anytime scripture talks about the city of Babylon, it's portrayed as the city of Satan, the city of evil, the Satan of demonic. The member of Babylon spawned what? The Tower of Babel. Babel, right? A whole host of demonic religious activities. So Satan entered planet Earth and began to influence Adam and Eve on this river at the Garden of Eden. So God is now going to judge this. Verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they might do what? If you can read that and it doesn't impact you, you have to turn your brain on yet. Now, it's important to remember that everything God does has divine purpose, plan, and timing. I know that sometimes in our lives... Stuff happens. Has stuff ever happened to you? Yeah, stuff happens. And it generally happens when you're not expecting it. How much stuff happened to you this week that was not on your schedule for it to happen? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty normal. You know something? The stuff that happened in your life did not surprise your Heavenly Father. He's either arranged it or allowed it. 
All of it. Nothing in your life this week surprised your Heavenly Father. It all crossed His desk for His approval before it happened to you. And you're saying, are you kidding? Really? Uh-huh. Because He knows what you need. He also knows what you want. And those are not the same thing, right? You notice that. I'm glad that I'm not the only one that noticed that. What I want you to underline here, it says they have been prepared. These four angels have been prepared for what? The hour, day, month, and year. What's the message here? The very precise instant for this event, year, month, day, down to the very hour, has been ordained by God from eternity past. Right? This is not a surprise. These angels were bound according to God's purpose, and now they're released also according to God's purpose. Now, we don't know why they were bound. It doesn't say why these four especially <laughs> evil angels were bound, but we do know why they're going to be released. Why are they going to be released? What's God's purpose? Kill a third of mankind. Okay? You look at that and you say, really? Yeah, really. If you ever wondered whether God was thorough, how many of you ever talked to somebody who said, they got away with it? <laughs> they did X, Y, Z, and they got away with it. They never went to trial. Just not yet. Their time is coming, right? The wheels of God's justice grind slowly from a human standpoint, but they're always precisely on God's schedule. Precisely on God's schedule. This event has been planned from before the foundation of the world. Now, you need to understand that the only people being killed here are earth dwellers. Scripture, Revelation, talks about earth dwellers over and over and over again. An earth dweller is one whose citizenship is on earth. They have no citizenship in heaven. They do not belong to Jesus Christ. They are not redeemed. They are in rebellion, and they persist in rebellion. So an earth dweller is someone who has refused to repent and is at war with God. Now, during this great tribulation period... People will certainly die as martyrs. We know that. Millions. We know that people will die from natural causes. We know that the Antichrist is going to kill a whole lot of them. But only people who reject the Lamb will die at the hands of this demonic army. Right? So when he says one-third of mankind, it's one-third of the earth dwellers, those who are in rebellion. The implication is at least one-third of humanity is in rebellion against God at this time. Do you think that's true today? You think one-third of humanity has rejected Jesus? Ah, yeah, I think it's probably higher than that. Here's the principle. God prevents death, permits death, and even prescribes death in order to accomplish His divine purposes. Remember, a couple weeks ago we talked about the fifth trumpet judgment. God permits the demons to torment mankind, but prevents the demons from killing anyone. So he permits torment, but he prevents death. People try and kill themselves, but God sends death on a holiday. If you remember the first half of this chapter, those who were tormented by demons couldn't die because God sent death on vacation. God's goal was not just to punish them for sin, but as we mentioned up front at the top, God permitted the demons to torment them for five months and prevented death from occurring so they would experience hell on earth. So they could decide whether it was worth doing forever. You would think that most of them would go, wow, you got to be kidding. I mean, I'm in nonstop pain for five months. I can't release the pain. I can't get out of it. I can't even get out of it by means of death. And yet these same people are worshiping demons in the last half of this chapter. And the demons are the ones who are causing their pain. Does that sound like stuck on stupid? <laughs> yeah, you know people like that, right? I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it's a really incredible. It's really incredible. Now, the sixth trumpet judgment, God is prescribing death. He prevented it the first half of this chapter. He's now prescribing it as the divine solution for these people that refuse to repent. By the way, how many people do you think Satan and his demons would like to kill if they were given free reign? Why? Send you all to hell right now. Right? Eliminate the potential of redemption for all of humanity at once. So you see that God has restrained evil because he limits the deaths to how many? One third. Why? To give the other two thirds an opportunity to repent. Is that not mercy? That's great mercy. 
Remember, back in chapter 6-8, when the fourth seal judgment opened, how many of mankind was killed one quarter? Let me give you the numbers. World population today is about 7.2 billion people. One fourth of that that died in the seal judgment is about 1.75 billion people. So you got about five and a quarter billion people left, right? This takes out one third of them, another, another 1.75 billion people. So you got three and a half billion people that are now gone from planet Earth at the end of this judgment. It's almost incomprehensible. Life, it, life as we know it will end. There's going to be labor shortages. You can't get anything done. You try and call and get somebody on the line to fix your electronic device. There's nobody going to be answering. Half humanity is dead, right? Life is going to get a lot more primitive. It's incomprehensible how you think about burying almost two billion corpses. Uh, you know, your brain just kind of goes numb. You think to yourself, I didn't even recognize the world. You're right, you don't. God's now judging it. He's repossessing his planet and he's going to eradicate evil in the process. And the third that die have already repeatedly refused to repent. So how do these two billion people die? Verse 16. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. So we have four fallen angels, four demons who are apparently commanding these armies. And by the way, there's been a lot of speculation about these armies. I've read more commentaries to make your eyes crawl. And there's a lot of different opinions on this by good people. There's really good scholarship on both sides. I'm going to tell you what I believe and I'm going to give you rationalization why that is true. Some believe these armies are largely human armies even using modern weapons. Now, when they say 200 million, it's literally two myriads of myriads. The Greek myriad is 10,000, right? 10,000 times 10,000 is what? 10,000 times 10,000. Myriads by myriads. 100 million. 100 million times two? 200 million. That's where we get 200 million. It is literally almost an incomprehensible number at that point in time. Now, I don't think John counted them all. Probably not. It'd probably take a little time. It was told him. It was revealed to him. There's 200 million here. Let me put this in perspective. At the height of World War II, the sum of all soldiers in uniform worldwide on both sides of the aisle was about 70 million soldiers. World War II. Everybody's at war, 70 million. This army is three times that size. Three times that size. Until modern times, the population of planet Earth would never support an army of 200 million people. At the time of Christ, the entire world population was around 200 million. That's about it. In 1600 AD, population of planet Earth was about 500 million. Right? About a half a billion people. The logistics behind organizing, equipping, transporting, feeding, and fighting 200 million soldiers are almost incomprehensible. How many of you have ever been to Normandy? You know what Normandy is? Normandy, France? June 6, 1944, what happened on the Normandy beaches? D-Day. It's the greatest logistical achievement in human history. In the first five days of that invasion, 325,000 troops were landed on the beaches, 54,000 vehicles were landed on the beaches, and 105,000 tons of supplies landed on the beaches in the first five days. Now, in order to make that work, it took two and a half years of planning and the entire industrial might of the United States to make that work, right? When these 200 million soldiers show up, half of planet Earth or a quarter of planet Earth is already dead. Half, a third of the sea life, a third of the land life, a third of the food supply, the fresh water is already degraded, okay? going to be very, very, very difficult to get the logistics together to have 200 million human soldiers. My belief is, and you can argue with me on this, and it's, it, you know, I, I, there's multiple interpretations, but I take a literal interpretation of this. It seems that it's best described as demons, as a demonic army, who are commanded by four demonic angels. They appear to have been bound as well, the 200 million demons. Now, I've never gone into... Um, how many angels are there? How many demons are there? I think you can probably presume there's hundreds of millions on both sides. We know there's two-thirds of the angels followed God, one-third followed Satan. So we, we have a pretty rough idea of it's two-thirds, one-third at that point in time. But you literally now have an additional 200 million demons that are released to planet Earth to raise hell. Literally raise hell. That's what their goal is at that point in time.
Their location is the Euphrates River, Mesopotamia, which is the earthly origin, of course, of Satan's contact. And their job description is to kill one-third of mankind. John now describes this army, verse 17. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and of brimstone, and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. Now, you know and I know that fire-breathing horses are not normal horses, right? What? <laughs> I have a horse that burns money, but fire doesn't come out of their mouth. You know, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You understand. If you own pets, you understand. You understand. These horses appear like horses. They are ridden like normal horses. And he describes the riders of these horses. He says they're wearing breastplates. Now, a breastplate is, it covers the chest, right, for protection. It's a defensive piece of armor. It's usually made out of uh, iron at that point in time. And these breastplates are tricolored. There's three different colors on these breastplates. They're red, hyacinth, and brimstone. Now, fire is color of red. Hyacinth, what's the color of hyacinth? Anybody know? Blue. blue to black, somewhere in that neck of the woods. Kind of the color of burning smoke. And of course, hyacinth, I mean brimstone, is sulfur. Sulfur gas. That's yellow at that point. So the three colors here are red, black, and yellow. Right? The colors of hell. Joel, the prophet Joel, describes this demonic invasion in these terms. Joel 2, for those of you that want to cross-reference. Their appearance, this army's appearance, Joel, is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. Joel 2, 4-5. With a noise like chariots over mountains they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Five times Joel uses the word like, like. What I'm seeing is like this. What I'm seeing is like this. What I'm seeing is like this. They use the language of the day to describe an event. John says they have bodies of horses and heads like lions. Apparently they looked like horses that resembled a normal horse, but their head looked like a lion. Okay? A lion is what? Yes, sir. Joel 2. You want, to, you want to get another look at this? Yeah, Joel, 1, Joel 2, verses 4 to 5. Actually, the entire chapter of Joel 2. A lion is what? A predator, right? A lion exists to run down prey, kill it. They're very voracious. They stalk in order to kill and eat. Lions are built for the kill. Yes? That's what they're designed to do. Lions will never be vegetarians. They will not even be lactovegans, right? They're meditarians. That's what they do, right? In the same way, demons are designed to destroy. That's what demons do. Jesus said that Satan and his angels are what? They have come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In contrast, Jesus said, I am come to give you life. Satan is a liar and he's also a murderer. So he's a killer. In that sense, he's like a lion. Second Peter said he's like a lion that wanders around seeking who he can devour. He roars like a lion at that point in time. You would never hire a demon to babysit your three-year-old. You know, that's just not good strategy because they're designed to destroy. That's what they do. In the Gospels, we see demons throwing people in the water trying to drown them, throwing people in the fire trying to burn them, getting people to cut themselves with rocks and bleed to death, a demoniac at the Gadarenes. So demons are destructive, fallen angels, under Satan's authority, committed to Satan's agenda. And they have weapons. Let's go to verse 18. The weapons of these demons are threefold. Fire, smoke, and brimstone. It says, a third of mankind, about 1.75 billion people in today's numbers, was killed by these three plagues by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. So the weapons are called plagues. Apparently, these demons can project fire and brimstone, almost lava-like heat from their mouths like dragons. Right? Remember, you remember the dragon? They're supposed to be able to breathe out fire. Apparently, these demons can do that and that's how they kill people at that point in time. You know, fire can burn you to a crisp. Smoke inhalation can certainly suffocate you, right? 
smoke, and brimstone is a sulfur gas. And that'll, that can both asphyxiate you and burn you at that point. So it's interesting that God describes these demons in these three terms. God also used fire, smoke, and brimstone to take out what nation, state, city? Sodom and Gomorrah. So when you see fire, smoke, and brimstone, it almost always is directly related to judgment. God used it to judge evil. Now God is literally allowing the powers of hell to judge unrepentant humanity. Right? These third that get killed have refused to repent and they have rejected God and God finally says, thy will be done. Have you ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? Any of you read that book, The Great Divorce? It's one of the best, most biblically accurate books on heaven I think I've read. At the very end, he says, at the end of the day, either you say to God, thy will be done, or at the very end, he's going to say to you, thy will be done. Remember, everybody in hell has chosen to be there. Nobody gets sent to hell. People that go to hell choose to be there because they reject Jesus Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, which is the way to get to heaven, and that is available to everyone, whosoever will. So when someone tells you, God's just this mean guy that sent people to hell, that is not true. People choose to go to hell because they reject God. And we see that over and over and over. And the grace and mercy that God is showing humanity throughout the book of Revelation staggers me. Staggers me. Verse 19, John's going to give a little bit more detail about the weapons. For the weapons, the power of these horses, these demonic horses, is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. So we got an additional weapon now. They have both a weapon in the front and the back, the head and the tail. The heads are like lions, and their tails are like serpents. Lions kill with power. Serpents kill with poison is the implication here. So these demons are pretty invulnerable. They have no obvious weaknesses. John is really using imagery to describe the indescribable. If, if you were going to describe what a demon looked like, how would you describe it? You would say, well, I really haven't seen one. I mean, their spirit, right? The closest I've ever gotten to even imagine what a demon would look like is in J.R.L. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Remember the orcs? I think they're trying to give you a bit of an image when you remember that scene. I'm sure demons are far worse than that, but that gives you somewhat of a picture at that point in time. So John is using terms that he has seen, horses, lions, serpents, fire, smoke, brimstone, to describe something that we have never seen before at that point. See, the fifth trumpet judgment, just before this, he talks about demons in the form of locusts with tails like scorpions, and they torment. And now he's saying these horse demons, the lion demons, that's the form they have, and they kill from the front and the back, and they don't just torment, they commit genocide. And they take out almost two billion people. Now here's the one where you need to put your seatbelt on. Uh, the first three, the first two-thirds of this last half of this chapter describe what happens, and now we're going to talk about the response of those who are left alive. This part is very difficult to talk about. Verse 20, And the rest of mankind, the two-thirds who were not killed by these plagues, what did they do? of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Everyone deserves to die for their own sin. Yes? All have sinned and fall short, so everybody deserves to die. God in mercy allows two-thirds to live so that they can repent and be reconciled. Here's the part that's mind-numbing. Even after experiencing one-third of mankind dying before their eyes, the two-thirds that are left still refuse to repent. Does that mean at this point nobody else comes to Christ? Um, not, no, I'm not saying that because we have the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. We have the two witnesses we're going to talk about ne uh, two weeks from now, maybe even next week. So we know evangelism is going on, worldwide evangelism at that point. But there are a slug of people who are not dead who refuse to repent. Now, I think they're earth dwellers. 
I think there are ones who have ref are refusing to repent. God's just giving them more time because he only took out one third. So I'm persuaded that the two thirds that are left up to this point in time have still refused to repent. And from now on, you never see an earth dweller repent from this point on. It's almost like they've hardened their hearts to the point of no return. Let's talk about that. Repent means to turn around. Repentance means to change your mind and your behavior. Now that's the tough part. Anybody can change their mind. Changing your behavior is a much more difficult thing. But instead of repenting, these people harden their hearts. Remember the story of Pharaoh, the narrative? Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they imprison the Israelites. Moses comes and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, go pound sand. I'm not going to let them go. God says, I'm going to perform a plague. You're going to see my hand. You're going to see my power. Nine times, nine plagues. Egypt is literally destroyed, and Pharaoh says, not going to. Over and over it says, God intensified the plague. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God gives a stronger plague. Pharaoh hardens his heart even more. So Pharaoh's heart's getting harder and harder and harder and harder. When did Pharaoh finally let them go? When the firstborn was dead in every household. Now that's learning your lesson a little late. Right? Yeah, I got it, but it's a little late in the game at that point. These people refused to repent even after more than half of the world's population is now dead. And they've witnessed it all. See, one of the things we say, well, if they only had more evidence, then they would, I mean, then they would repent. If they just saw, well, let's see, we're, you know, roughly three and a half years. We're coming to the midpoint of tribulation at this point in time, and these folks haven't repented. If you want a very strong verse on this, Jeremiah 5, verse 3. Jeremiah 5, 3. Jeremiah's prophesying about Israel. He says, you have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them but they have refused to receive correction. And sometimes your children and grandchildren are like that, right? You can whack them, you can talk to them, and they refuse to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. We have all met people who refuse to receive correction. See, judgment gives you the opportunity to repent, but not, you still have to choose to repent, right? Why would people refuse to repent? Do they need more evidence? Uh, Luke 16 gives us a very interesting true story about a rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man, of course, uh, goes to hell. He refuses salvation. The poor man, Lazarus, goes to heaven. And the rich man is talking from the abyss or from actually from hell, Sheol. And he says to Abraham, you know, go send someone from here, send Lazarus to talk to my brothers. I got five brothers left on earth. Go talk to them and tell them to repent so they won't come to this place. And Abraham says, they got Moses and the prophets. They, they've got evidence. They've got truth. He says, no, 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 Father Abraham. If someone comes back from the dead, they will surely listen and repent, right? <laughs> Abraham says, you know something? If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, even if someone comes back from the dead, they're not going to change their mind. So they don't need more evidence. The issue is not more evidence. The issue is a hard heart. Now, if you want to know why people have a hard heart towards God, you know people who refuse to repent. Yes? They know, and they still refuse to repent. I'll tell you why. John 3, 19 to 21. Write this one down because you're going to need to remember it for your own life. John 3, 19 to 21. John, the same apostle John says, and this is the judgment, that light is come into the world and, underline this, men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Verse 20, John 3. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light because their deeds will be exposed. Right? So I'm sinning. I don't want to come to the light because the light's going to expose my sin. Here's the principle. When you refuse to repent, you are loving your sin more than you love Jesus. And you look and you go, well, I wish you'd talk about that to somebody else and not me. The truth of it is, this is us. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin in our lives, right? I've got sin in my life. 
You have a choice. Either you repent from that sin or you refuse to repent from that sin. If you refuse to repent from the sin that God is bringing into your life, you're saying, Jesus, I love my sin more than I love you. If I come to Jesus, I have to give up my sin, and I love my sin, so I reject Jesus. People still believe the lie from Satan that my way is better than God's way. Have you, do any of us ever get caught in that trap? Of course we do, and we know better. You know what you're saying? My sin brings me more satisfaction than obedience to Jesus brings me. Now that is a lie, and that's the original lie. Eve got told that. Adam got told that. If you eat this tree, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. Lie? Yeah, you're going to know good and evil. That part was true, but you're never going to be like God. You can be God. Big, big, big lie. The people, the reason people refuse to repent is they love their sin. What did people need to repent of? It says they did not repent of the works of their hands. What they needed to repent from was making and worshiping idols. It says, so as not to worship demons. By the way, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that ultimately all idol worship is demon worship. You know why? Either you worship God or you're going to worship Satan. People say, I don't worship anybody. Oh, yes, you do. Everybody worships. You know what most people worship today? The mirror. You know how I know that? They take selfies. Good Lord, you're not that good looking, man. I'm telling you, selfies. Thousands of them. You go on vacation. What do you see? People with selfie sticks everywhere. And you're going, is there a model around here or something? Because it ain't you, bud. I mean, you know, get over yourself. Incredible. But you will worship. If you refuse to worship God, you're going to worship Satan. It says, and the idols of gold and silver, right? This is, this is worshiping stuff. He could have said the idols of Ferrari, the idols of Prada, the idols of fill-in-the-blanks, whatever it happens to be. Football, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, we do worship football. Yeah, now we're meddling. Hey, this is good. I love this. Let's rock and roll. He tells you about the idols. He says, your idols can't see, can't hear, can't walk, can't talk. He says, idol worship is stupid because they're dead. You know something? Idol worship today is the norm. It's the norm. We don't even make our idols anymore. That's so old-fashioned. We buy our idols from the store. We stand in line for hours and days so we can get them first. Smartphones, big screens. What is it? Black Friday? People walk on each other, crush each other to do what? Get to their idols called stuff from Walmart or wherever they're going to buy it from. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Would you spend all night in line for stuff? Uh, you know, I'd say that's a little twitched, a little tweaked, you know what I mean? And so we go, well, that's not an idol. Really? I got a, I got a challenge for you. I got a challenge. I bet not one of you will take me up on it. Try and shut off every single piece of electronic media in your life for just one weekend. All of it. No smartphone. No, all electronics are gone. Period. Most people go, <laughs> where's my Starbucks? I need some help here. You know, I mean, I'm telling you, we have idols. We just... We say, well, I don't make little brass or gold or silver things. No, no, no. We just make them in a factory and we buy them. Yeah. Same thing. We're a nation of idolaters. Absolutely we are. Here's the principle. You become like and behave like whatever you worship. And everyone worships. When people worship power, they become more violent. When people worship money, they become more greedy. greedy. When people worship stuff, they become possessed by their possessions, right? When people worship sex, they manipulate people instead of ministering to people, right? Verse 21 tells us what happens to people who refuse to worship God and, and they begin to worship Satan? Because you're going to worship one or the other. Verse 21 tells you what these people are like, and some of them are your neighbors. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. It says there, 
murders, their sorceries. It doesn't say societies, right? Because all sin is personal. This is not public sin. This is personal sin, right? When people refuse to worship God, they will worship Satan and they will begin to behave like Satan and we know what they're like. They're murderers. At this period of time, right to life will mean nothing. Life will be so degraded. I mean, half the population is dead. If you've seen that many bodies, do you think you'd be a little calloused? Yeah, there's three and a half billion dead people in the last three years. You would get very calloused. People are callous today, right? Crime is going to be epidemic. Personal safety is going to be non-existent. They're not going to be care for each other. People are going to exploit and destroy each other. What did Jesus say? People's love for each other will grow cold. They will become self-centered. It's literally going to be every man for himself, and they're not going to repent from it. Do you see the genesis of this in our culture today? Of course you do. It's all about moi, right? It says they're not going to repent of their sorceries. Now, sorcery, the Greek there is pharmakia. What do you think that comes from? Pharmakia. Pharmacy. What do you buy at the pharmacy? Really good stuff, hopefully, right? It literally means druggings. Druggings, to administer drugs. Now, drug use in this culture involved potions, charms, witchcraft, consulting mediums, conjuring spells and curses because for millennia people have used drugs as a gateway to deal with the, the occult, to deal with the spirit world. Very, 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 very common practice. Satan knows that. That's why he loves to get people addicted to drugs because he can enter their life much easier that way. So we're going to see drug abuse is going to be epidemic. Why do you think people are going to be really, really, really hooked on drugs during this period of time? How are you going to cope with half the planet destroyed? The ocean, a third of the ocean's gone. The land doesn't produce. There's famine. There's water shortages. Dead bodies everywhere. I think people are going to go, you know, I'll do anything to shut the pain off. Right? I mean, give me something. They just came out of five months of scorpions. Thing. I mean, they're going to be doing anything they can to get rid of pain, to escape. Whatever it takes. That's right, Dan. It's absolutely true at that point in time. And they're going to get wholesale into worship. Of Satan because they refuse to worship God. It says they're going to be addicted to immorality. The Greek is porneia, means pornography, prostitution, fornication, pedophilia, bestiality, any unlawful sexual activity. Do we live in a culture that's addicted to sex? You know the problem is? We're destroying the gift. We're addicted to sex and we enjoy it less and less as a culture because we've destroyed it. Let me tell you what prostitution is. Prostitution is taking that which was intended for one purpose and degrading it and using it for another purpose that God did not intend. It's not just sexual prostitution. It's prostitution of all kinds. Have you ever read somebody who said they prostituted their musical gift and they did blah, blah, blah. They took it for the purpose for which it was intended and they used it for something completely different. That's what we're talking about here in the realm of sexual immorality, but it's true across the board at that point in time. One of our biggest curses in our culture today is, por is pornography. Pornography for a male is more lethal than crack. It is worse than heroin. It is addictive because men were attracted with our eyeballs. You used to have to go to where it was, and now you've got to run to keep it from covering you up on your computer. I mean, it's very epidemic, and it destroys marriage, and it destroys yourself because it's the lie that, the, that lust will fulfill you. It never will. All lust is drinking marine water. It's drinking ocean water. It's drinking salt water. It never satisfies. You ever tried to drink salt water? The more you drink, the more you want. It's destroying your kidneys, but you'll drink more and more and more because it makes you thirsty. It's supposed to satisfy your thirst. That's God's design. God's design is to satisfy your thirst. This stuff here is way outside God's design because it's all committed by earth dwellers who are unwilling to repent. And I know you know people in your life that are unwilling to repent. They need your prayer. They need Jesus. Big time. They think they're free. They say, I don't worship God, but I sure don't worship Satan. I'm going to make my own choice. No, if you don't worship God, you're already worshiping Satan. It may look in the mirror and you go, well, I'm taking care of me. No, no, no. It's one or the other. 
It says they also won't repent of their thefts. Fraud, deceit, corruption. You know, I think stealing is going to be very epidemic during this period of time. Food and water are scarce. Do you think people will take what they need? Yeah, they'll take what they need. And you know, if you try and stop them, you know what they'll do? They'll kill you. Because murder is going to happen at that point in time. See, anytime you reject God, back to our key idea, you will embrace Satan. There is no neutral and everybody must choose. I know you have chosen to follow Jesus. We know that there's a large chunk of mankind that's not going to choose to follow Jesus. And God is saying, my patience is coming to an end. I no longer can tolerate evil. The stench of this wickedness is now to the point in time where I have to judge it. But he only sends the judgment on those that have up to this point in time refused to repent, refused to repent, refused to repent, refused to repent. Here's one of the reasons that I have feel such passion about this. I talk to people on a routine basis, and so do you, that say, I'll get around to it someday. Someday. I literally talk to a guy and he says, man, I'll make my peace with God on the way up. Really? No, no, no. If you haven't made peace before you leave, there is no time on the way up, right? It's done at that point in time. Yeah, ain't no way up. So it's really imperative. There are people in your world that refuse to repent because they think they have time. And you and I also know that our time is not guaranteed. Seriously be praying for these people. As Pastor Roger talked about this morning, invite them. Reach out to them because judgment is coming and the day will come when God says, I'm going to purify this planet either by bringing my own out of it and destroying the sin that's left in it, right? I know that right now we coexist with evil as God's children. The day will come when that's going to end. So you're going to continue to see God ratchet these judgments up. We haven't even got to the bold judgments yet. But he is taking back his planet. This is his world. Amen? And he's writing this to us so that today we can live in light of this. Don't get too attached to the planet, folks. He's going to destroy it, right? And he's going to make a new one. I love people's environmental concerns. You know, where mankind's going to destroy the planet. No, 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 no. You're not going to destroy the planet. The creator who created this is going to destroy it. Right? You ought to see what he's going to do to his planet. We're required to be stewards, but you can't worship the thing. Right? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Okay, before Tom comes up, here's the key idea. When you reject God, you embrace Satan and vice versa. There's no neutral. Everyone must choose. Number two, God prevents death, permits death, and this is a hard one for you to swallow, but it's absolutely true, even prescribes death in order to accomplish his purposes. Number three, when you refuse to repent, you are loving your sin more than you love Jesus. Sometime this week, the Holy Spirit's going to bring a sin in front of your face and say, son, daughter, I want you to repent of this. You have a choice. Do you love your sin more than you love Jesus? If you love your sin more, you're going to rationalize it. You're going to say, God, come back next week. We'll talk about it. I don't want to give this up. God wants to get the cancer out of your life, and you don't want to go through surgery. Let him do surgery. And last one, you become like and behave like whatever you worship, and everyone worships. Pay attention to what captures your heart. What you cannot do without, I promise you, you worship. That's why I camped on the iPhones, because most people can't do without an iPhone. Really? What did we do for six and a half thousand years before we invented them? We made these little statuesques. Now, you know, we buy them from the store. Anyway, just be aware. Ask God to show you if you have an idol in your heart that he wants to deal with. All right, now that you know, do. Read ahead next week for chapter 10 and maybe even part of 11.